Today's Bible reading is Luke 1, 5 to 25. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple. For he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Father, we are reminded this morning that no word from your mouth will ever fail. And we ask, Lord, that as we come to your word, that you would speak to us, that we would hear your voice and we would respond with faith and trust because you are faithful. Amen. Many of you will probably know this, uh, but there is a bit of an epidemic happening amongst the the young adults at Narrabin Baptist Church. It's what I like to think of as a pregnancy epidemic. Um, I don't know what's caused it. Actually, that's not true. I do know what's caused it. But it it is... There's so many people having babies at this church at the moment. Um, And I was at a a birthday thing yesterday, a birthday gathering. And uh, 
there was just infants everywhere. It was actually a bit shocking because there was a lot, a lot of people in their late 20s and early 30s and there was also a lot of people in the first year of their life. And it was kind of like, I've never been at a party like this before. I'm not sure. I've got to be careful where I stand uh, and all that kind of thing. It was a bit frightening. And there was also just lots of people holding babies and passing babies around. And you see people passing these babies around, and then you get kind of curious about having a hold of one of these babies yourself. And so you see a mom holding a baby, and you say, can I please have a hold of, of your baby? And you get this kind of protective mom look at that point when you ask to hold somebody's baby. Um, it's helicopter parents in the making. And um, they look at you up and down, and they kind of ask themselves the question, can you be trusted? Can you be trusted with my baby? And uh, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Trust. Because you can often try to assess whether somebody is trustworthy by looking at them or by assessing their character or assessing the kind of things that they do or the things that they say. Uh, in this passage that we come to this morning, we're being asked a question. Can God be trusted? Is God worthy of our trust? I think for many of us, uh, you know, if we've grown up in a church or if we've grown up in a Christian environment, we'll, we'll come to that question and we'll say, well, of course God can be trusted. Uh, but even the most faithful of Christians at some stage in their life will question whether God is trustworthy. For example, when, when you're about to step out in faith and go and serve Jesus in a new location, in a new country, can God be trusted? Or when one of your children walks away from the faith, can God be trusted? When the test results come back from, from the doctor and it's, it's bad news. Or when the tumor is growing or the cancer is spreading. Or when bushfires have just ravaged everything that you've ever owned and taken them away from you. Can God be trusted? I think in those moments, even the most faithful of Christians finds themselves asking whether God can be trusted. And as we come to this story this morning, it, it, it tells us, it, it gives us some information about God's trustworthiness. So I'm going to invite you to read through this story with us again as we come to it. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, it'll be really good for you to have one in front of you as we go through this story. So the story starts and it says in verse 5, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. It seems like a fairly boring way to start a story by giving the kind of context, but it's actually really important because Luke, the writer of this gospel, is, he's just told us in the first five verses of the book that he is a historian who is setting out to give an orderly account according to the eyewitnesses and careful investigation. So Luke isn't here, he's not writing a, fan a fantasy or a fairy tale, he's writing news, he's reporting a story. This is factual stuff, and he starts with the facts. This story happens in the time of King, of Herod, the king of Judea. Now, that time, we know from history, is from about 37 BC to about 4 BC, uh, and this story probably happens in 5 or 4 BC, so not long before the birth of Jesus. Um, Herod was appointed the ruler of Palestine by Mark Antony in Rome, who we know about from the history books. And Herod was a very, very famous ruler because he embarked on these enormous building projects all over Judea and Galilee. Uh, they, were, they are famous today still. So the, the temple in Jerusalem was one of Herod's buildings. 
uh, a place called Caesarea Maritime in, in the north of Israel, another place called Herodium, which he named after himself. These are all famous buildings that Herod has built. Uh, we know about these things because of a guy called Josephus, who was a, a Jewish historian who writes a lot about the first century, and not, he was not a biblical writer. And Herod established all of these buildings all over, all over Israel, um, and they were kind of a sign to the Israelites of their oppression. They were a reminder. Every time that the Israelites saw the new temple, or every time they saw Caesarea Maritime or Herodium, or any of the other massive building projects that Herod had embarked on, they were reminded that they were under Roman, Roman occupation. It was a constant reminder to them that Rome was conquer, had conquered their land. And this would have been a time in history where many people would have questioned God's trustworthiness. For hundreds of years, Israel has been under foreign occupation. The Greeks, and then, and then uh, once they'd come back from exile, the, the, there was the Assyrians, and then there was the Greeks, and now, here, now we have the Romans. There is this constant presence of foreign people in their land, even though God had made these promises. And so people were questioning God's trustworthiness. So we're introduced to the world of, of of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then we are introduced to them. Have a look at verse 6. So these two are firstly descended from the priestly line, which means that Zechariah is a priest and his wife is also descended from a priestly line. And then verse 6, we're told what they're like. Righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So these are faithful Israelite people. There's actually really not much greater praise that you can give to someone to say that they are righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, that doesn't mean that they were perfect. It doesn't mean that they were sinless or anything like that. What that means is that there was nothing, they were above reproach. No one held anything against these two. And then surprisingly, we're told that Elizabeth was not able to conceive and that they were very old. So they have no children. And they have no children on two fronts. Firstly, they were never able to have children. And secondly, now, they are beyond the age of childbearing. So the story begins, and we were reminded of of kind of two plights. We have the Israelite plight. They're on tough times. They're under Roman occupation. They are oppressed. And then we zoom in a little bit, and we get these two particular Israelites who are faithful to God and yet have no children. They have a tough lot in life. And these parallel experiences are the setting of our story. So let's hop in for the next bit. So we're told that, firstly, Zechariah is a priest. And for two weeks of the year, what the priests would do is they would go to Jerusalem and they would serve in the temple. Now, according to Josephus, at this time, there was about 18,000 priests in, in Israel. Uh, and so every, every group of priests was given two weeks of the year. So that means that even in, in Zechariah's group of priests, there would have been hundreds of priests. Uh, and among those hundreds of priests, Zechariah is chosen by lots, which is kind of like the casting of dice. He's chosen by lots to be the one who goes into the center of the temple to burn the incense. This is like a monumental experience. It's a huge privilege and it's once in a lifetime uh, for Zechariah. So he heads into the temple to burn the incense and the worshippers are gathered outside praying. He is by himself in the heart of the temple, which was a very sacred space if you're an Israelite. And when he walks into the room, he sees something that he's not expecting to see. There's the altar right there in front of him. And to the right of the altar, an angel. 
Now, at this point, if you're reading this story for the first time and you were told at the beginning that uh, Luke is a historian, <laughs> somebody who writes about history, careful investigation, eyewitness account, he's, he's trying to be a news reporter, and then you come to an angel, probably you're going to be asking some questions like, really? An angel? In a carefully investigated news report? That seems a bit odd, doesn't it? But I just want to remind you that, firstly, Zachariah thought it was odd too. (laughs) He walked into the temple and he looked up and he was like, I wasn't expecting to see that. Uh, So there's that, first of all. So he's he's probably as surprised as you are. But also, keep in mind that that's not actually the strangest thing that happens in this story. The stranger thing that happens in this story is that a little bit after this, a woman who is barren and who is too old to conceive, so she's probably in her 60s, has a child. That's a much stranger event. You know, I was at this gathering yesterday where lots of young kind of 20s and 30-year-old people had, had children. Imagine if, if, you know, somebody who's well into their retirement was also there with a newborn baby uh, who was theirs. That, that's, that's not usual. That's not typical. So the, the, the angel in the temple isn't the strangest thing that we find in the story. The stranger thing that we find in the story is a, a child being born to an old barren lady. And actually, history confirms the existence of John the Baptist outside of the Bible, Josephus, again, he writes about John the Baptist. Apparently, John the Baptist was actually quite a big deal in first century Palestine. So I don't think Luke would have put this story in the Bible the way that it is, uh, where you would question his credibility unless it was pretty well accepted that John the Baptist was himself um, come from a barren old lady. So there's, there's that. So Zechariah walks into the temple. He sees this angel. He's frightened. He's gripped with fear. With fear. Now, keep in mind, the angel's about to speak to him. And when an angel speaks in the Bible, they're not just kind of speaking their own thoughts. Uh, Angels speak on behalf of God. That's always the way that it is in the Bible. Actually, the word angel is the same word for messenger in the Bible. So the angel speaks, and he speaks on the behalf of God. Now, this is really significant at this point in the story, because like I said before, it's about 4 BC. And the last time God has spoken a new word in Israel was about 450 years earlier when he spoke through the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament. So it's been four and a half centuries of God's silence, and then all of a sudden this angel shows up to an old man in the center of the temple, and he speaks. All through the occupation of Greece and Rome in in Israel, there's been silence from God, and now God speaks. And so the the obvious question is, well, what's God going to say through this angel? And and we're told in these verses that the angel speaks and says, Do not be afraid. Your prayers have been answered. You are going to have a child. A boy is going to be born to you. And he says that this will be a joy and a delight for you, Elizabeth, and for you, Zachariah, which is kind of no surprise. They've wanted to have children their whole life, and now they're being told that they're going to have a child. But this is actually going to be joy and, and celebration, not just for you two, but for many, he says. He says it'll be a celebration for all the people, for all of Israel. So this boy will be born, this boy who's going to be born, he's good news for Elizabeth and Zechariah, but he's also good news for Israel. There's something about John's birth that will bring about the redemption of Israel. The thing that the Israelites have been longing for for hundreds of years. This boy, is a, he, will, he will play a part in that story. Now, we're told as well that John's not going to drink alcohol, which in the Old Testament is usually an indication that he's going to be set apart for special work. 
uh, the people who don't, who, the people who abstain in the Old Testament usually do it because they they are set apart for God's service. And we're also told that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. And being filled with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was how the prophets um, were empowered to speak their message. So really, what this is saying is that John, who's going to be born to these old people, is going to be a prophet, um, which is surprising because he comes from two parents who are priests, and he's not going to follow the family the family. Uh, career, he's going to actually become a prophet instead. And we're told actually what John's message will be. Have a look at verse 16, 17. This is what John's message will be. He will bring back many people to, many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, to boil that down to what he's really saying there, he's saying, really, what John's going to tell the people to do is to repent. Verse 16 says, he will turn many people to the Lord, to the Lord their God. And then verse 17, he will turn the hearts of parents to their children, and he will turn the disobedient uh, to the wisdom of the righteous. He, he's going to tell people to turn, to turn from their wayward ways, to turn from their own choice of ways, and to turn back to God. So he's going to tell people to turn. And there's a reason that he's going to tell people to turn, because he's, he's preparing the way for the Lord. Have a look at the end of verse 17. He will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, all of this language that, uh, that the angel is using would, would have already been familiar to Zechariah. Because people in those days read their Bible pretty religiously. Especially given that the angel is referencing the last thing that God had said to Israel 450 years ago. So I'll show you. If you go back to the very, very end of the, of the Old Testament, it looks a bit like this. Yeah. See, this is the last sentence, and then it says the New Testament. Let me read what it says to you, because it sounds very familiar. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you. Before that great and dreadful day that the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So this angel comes to Zechariah and he, he basically references, he alludes to the last thing that God spoke to Israel 450 years ago. Really what the angel is saying to Zechariah is God's picking up the story where he left off. You are going to have a son and that son is going to be the answer to all of God's promises. That son is going to be the fulfillment of all of the things we were talking about in the Old Testament. Your son is going to be this Elijah-like prophet who will come and he will prepare the way for the Lord. He will tell people to turn to God so that God can come and bring about his justice once for all. All of the things that the Old Testament were promising about God's chosen person who would come and bring about the redemption of Israel and the salvation of all people, it's about to happen, is what the angel is saying, essentially. So thinking, I mean, those of you who know the story of the Old Testament well, it'll be easy for you to fill, fill the blanks there. But there are so many promises in the Old Testament that God is about to fulfill in firstly the coming of John and then following him, the coming of the Lord, the coming of Jesus the Messiah. Go all the way back to the first pages of the Bible where God promises that somebody will come who will crush the serpent's head. And then after that, there's a promise that the seed of Abraham will be a blessing to all of the world. And in the line of David, there would be a king who will come, who will reign forever and ever. And then the prophets come along and they talk about God restoring his justice 
and restoring his grace. And he talks about the blind being able to see, the lame being able to walk. All of these promises that God has made in the Old Testament, this angel says to Zechariah, the ball is rolling. God is starting to fulfill his promises. All of these promises that God has made in the past will now come to be. And your son is the beginning of that. This is exciting news. This is celebratory news. This is the sort of thing that you would, if you were a first century Israelite, you would be losing your mind to hear this kind of thing. For 450 years, you've waited in silence. God hasn't said anything new. And then an angel shows up and says, God's coming. And he's bringing about everything that he said he would. The restoration of Israel, the salvation of all people. We're meant to be excited. But you look at Zechariah's response in verse 18, and it's anything but. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. So God, silent for 450 years, and he finally speaks. And what does he get in response? He gets doubt. How can I be sure of this? Says Zechariah. Now, you might kind of listen to that and go, well, fair enough. You know, fair enough for Zachariah to ask that question. He is an old man and he's married to an old lady and they've never been able to have kids. And now this angel says, you're going to have a kid. And that kid's going to be the beginning of, of all of the fulfillment of God's promises. And it seems a bit unlikely. Except that it's actually not unlike the God of the Bible at all to do this kind of thing. Think about how many other stories you can read in the Old Testament about a barren person who has a child or an old person who's blessed with a child by God. I can tell you, it happens again and again and again. You get Abraham and Sarah at the start. And then you get Isaac and Rebekah. And then you get Jacob and Rachel. And then you get Jacob and Leah. And then you get Samuel's parents. And then you get Samson's parents. All of these people were either too old to have children, or they were unable to conceive in the first place. So you might think that it's fair enough that Zachariah asked these questions, but it's actually not fair enough. He knows that this is exactly the kind of thing that God does. God often will give old people children, or he'll often give um, barren women children. This is the sort of thing God does often. And yet when he hears that God is planning to do the same thing in his wife's womb, he comes back to this angel with, with doubt and reservation. He says, how can I be sure? Essentially what he says is, can I trust you, God? Can I trust you? How can I be sure? Actually, the doubt that uh, Zachariah has, it's even more emphasized. When you, when you keep reading the story, you, you meet a young woman who is visited by the same angel. This is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she's visited by Gabriel, Gabriel as well. And Gabriel says to her essentially a similar thing. You're going to have a child even though you're a virgin. And Mary's response is marketedly different to what Zachariah's response is. Mary says... I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled in me. She is perfectly faithful. Zechariah poses doubts. And if you have a look at the answer that Gabriel gives to, uh, Gabriel gives to Zechariah, we find an answer to our question, can God be trusted? So have a look at verse 19. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. 
You did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. See, what Zechariah doesn't get is that when God speaks something, it will come true. There's no question. He actually, it, it, you get it much more strongly when you go and read what Zechariah says to Mary. He says to Mary, no word from God will ever fail. No word from God will ever fail. And in the very coming of John and Jesus later, God is fulfilling all of these promises that he has already made in the Old Testament. No word from God will ever fail. God is faithful. He's consistent. It's actually the most important trait of God that he is consistent. Because if he wasn't consistent, then we couldn't really say anything else about him as well. Imagine trying to say that God is loving if you don't know that he is loving consistently. You can't say that. So one of the most important traits about God is that he is consistent. He is faithful. No word from him will ever fail because he is consistent and he is faithful. Uh, When I think about that word faithful and and what we mean by faithful when we're talking about the character of God, I often think of like a a CD, or for some of you maybe a record is is a more helpful image. Um, But what, like, what, what, no, I meant the young cool ones, the hipsters in the room who collect records. But what happens, what happens to a CD when you use it again and again and again and again uh, is that it usually gets scratched, and, and because it gets scratched, it, 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 it's not as faithful to the original recording. You know, it starts to jump or skip or something like that. It's the same thing with a record. I have used a record before, I promise. But the more that you use it, it gets scratched and it gets damaged, and it's not as faithful to the way that it was originally recorded. But what this is saying about God is that he is unlike any kind of record or, or CD, Uh, He is constantly consistent. He can never be scratched or damaged. He will always do what he says he will do. That's the character of God that we have all the way through the Bible. He will always do what he says he will do. He is always perfectly faithful to his words. And since that is the case, God can be trusted. Now we asked at the beginning, can God be trusted? But because God is always faithful to the things that he says, no word from God will ever fail. He can be trusted. So I guess the question that we need to ask ourselves is, do we trust God at his word? Do we trust him when he speaks to us? Or do we tend to be like Zechariah who says, how can I be sure? I think this is a really important question for us to ask ourselves because we often will hear from God's word. Uh, whether it's at church as we, as we read it together or it's a community group or even just by ourselves at home or, or with our children or wherever you happen to be reading God's word, it's important to remember to ask yourself the question, can, am I trusting this? Do I know that this is true? Because I think it's very easy to read the Bible and to kind of go, oh, interesting, and not to trust it. Uh, when I was in Bible college, they teach us about this thing called the impossible application of the text. So, you know, you, you do preaching class and they talk about applying the text to people and helping people to see how this text matters in their lives. And the thing that they talk about is, one of the things they talk about is the impossible application, which is kind of like when you read of the Bible and you think, no, it actually, no, you think to yourself, it's actually the opposite of what this says. <laughs> so, for example, when Jesus comes along and he says, life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, you think to yourself, but it could. 
<laughs> That's the impossible application. And what's really funny about that is that is often what we do when we read the Bible. We read something that God says to us, and then we think to ourselves, that might be true some of the time, but it's not true all of the time. But the truth is that God's world will never fail. It is always true. And so when Jesus says that you should seek first his kingdom, we kind of think, yeah, usually, (laughs) or at least like on Sunday or something like that. No, 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 he's not saying that. He's saying always seek first his kingdom. When Jesus says that you must be ready because Jesus will come at an hour when you do not expect him, we kind of think, how can I be sure, like Zechariah? No word from God will ever fail. Zechariah is shown to us as an example of what doubt looks like and a reminder to us that we should not doubt the words from God. I think this story comes at the start of the Gospel of Luke as a reminder that as we read through Luke, we should take God at his word because his word will never fail. Because as, as Jesus speaks through the Gospel of Luke, what we have are God's words. We have God's words to us. And by listening to Jesus' words, we will find the life that Jesus promised to give, the fulfilling life, the kingdom of God life, the life in all of its flourishing. So I'll pray for, our t- I'll pray for us now that we would trust God at his word. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you that you have spoken and that no word from you will ever fail. Please, Lord, help us to trust your word. Help us to trust you in the darkest moments of our lives. Help us to trust you when everything feels like it's going wrong. We know that your word will never fail. You can be trusted. You are faithful. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would take this word and it would sow it into our hearts, that it would become a a part of our daily lives. And we thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all your promises to us. Amen.